Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. On October 28, 2009, with their lights flashing, police and emergency vehicles of every kind lined to the street in front of 12205 Imperial Avenue, home to Anthony Edward Soule. The house was completely surrounded by officers and cordoned off with yellow crime scene tape. A SWAT team, dressed in all black, had already stormed their way inside while crowds gathered outside. Over the next couple of days, officers in blue paper booties and technicians in white hazmat suits could be seen going in and out of the house carrying brown paper bags with evidence. Crime scene photographers were busy photographing the entire house inside and out, including the surrounding yard which was being dug up with backhoes. The coroner, Frank Miller, could be seen supervising the removal of bodies from the property Friends and family and residents of the community had gathered to watch the gruesome scene. Some carried flyers with pictures of missing women, hoping and praying their loved ones wouldn't be found dead in the search, but desperately seeking answers. What happened in this Cleveland community is difficult to comprehend. The damage, the brutality, the indifference, and the heartbreak can still be felt to this day. Latundra Billups, or Lala as her friends called her, had been visiting family nearby and was on her way home when she ran into her friend Anthony Soule, known as Tone to his friends. Latundra met Soule two years ago, back in 2007. His girlfriend at the time, Lori Frazier, happened to be an old childhood friend of hers. Lori and Latundra hadn't seen much of each other over the years, but when they just happened to run into each other one day, they found out they both lived on Imperial Avenue in East Cleveland. Once they realized they were neighbors, Latendra began to hang out with both Lori and Soul fairly often to smoke crack. When Lori and Soul broke up, Latendra continued to hang out with Soul occasionally to get high. It was a late afternoon on September 23rd of 2009 when Soul invited her over to his place for a drink. Latendra hesitated. She'd heard the rumors going around about Seoul. She knew women were talking, and it wasn't good. Some of the women said that he'd been violent with them, and one woman said he'd held her captive in his home and raped her repeatedly throughout the day. She didn't report him to the police because she didn't want her family to know she was using drugs. Even though these rumors scared Latundra, the lure of a drink and the chance to smoke some crack, overrode her fear. So, even though she was pretty sure the rumors were true, the temptation to get high was just too strong and she accepted his invitation. She justified her decision to go with him by telling herself that Soul had always been kind to her. So there's no reason for her to be scared. As they walked towards Soul's house, Latundra suggested they get some crack. 
Soul gave her 50 bucks and she darted into a nearby house and scored some dope for them. Once they got to Soul's place, they headed upstairs to the second floor. As Soul drank his King Cobra malt liquor, Latundra sipped on some wild Irish rose wine, and they passed a crack pipe back and forth. The room they were in didn't have any furniture other than an old lawn chair and a dirty blanket on the floor. As the sun began to fade, Latundra began to get nervous. The dismal, bare surroundings seemed ominous in the growing darkness. For some crazy reason, Latundra decided to ask Sol if the rumors she'd heard about him were true. Now maybe the crack was clouding her judgment, because this just doesn't seem like the right time or place to ask that question. When she did, Sol, in a white-hot flash, turned on Latundra and punched her in the temple so hard he almost knocked her out. Then he ordered her to strip as she lie there on the floor, disoriented and hurting. Once she got her pants off, Sol began to perform oral sex on her. Latundra began to cry. Sol told her to shut up, while at the same time asking her if it felt good. Then he ordered her to turn over on her stomach. Lying on top of her, he spread her legs apart with his knees. He began to rape her vaginally. As he was raping her, he also wrapped an extension cord around her neck and began to pull. Latundra managed to get her fingers between the cord and her neck, but now her fingers were trapped. Latundra began fighting for her life, kicking, twisting, bucking, doing whatever she could to get him off of her. It didn't work. Her fingers were lacerated by the cord, the searing pain became unbearable, and she fell unconscious. Three hours later, she miraculously opened her eyes. Latundra couldn't believe she was still alive, but she was extremely grateful, to say the least. She began gasping for air while Sol, who had been sitting next to her, was smoking a cigarette. He was just as surprised as she was that she hadn't died. He just sat there staring at her in the dark. Latundra, amazed that she was still alive, was determined to stay that way and to get the hell out of Sol's house. Unsteady on her feet, she began to get dressed. Her sweater was ripped and smelled of malt liquor, which had spilled. She also smelled feces. It was then that she realized she had lost control of her bowels when Sol had strangled her. Sol asked her what she was doing, and Latundra told him she was going home. He told her she couldn't leave, that he was going to have to kill her and himself. He told her that he knew she was going to go to the police, and he couldn't let that happen. Latundra wasn't scared anymore. She was determined. She convinced Sol that she had no intention of going to the police. She then switched the subject to her torn sweater in an attempt to divert his attention. She complained to him that he had torn her sweater as if that were more important to her than the fact that he had just tried to kill her. It worked. Sol apologized and offered to make it up to her. He let her go through some clothing that a previous girlfriend had left behind and told her if she came back the next day, he would give her 50 bucks and get her high. Latundra kept a straight face, but inside she was thinking, there's no way in hell I will ever come back to this hellhole again. And then he casually walked her to the front door and she left the house. Latundra started walking and dared not look back. 
She was battered and bruised and in a great deal of pain from the punch to her temple and having an extension cord wrapped around her neck. She spent the night at a friend's house, but the next day she had a friend drive her to the ER. While she was in the ER, she reported to the staff that she had been assaulted and raped. Due to the severity of her claim, the hospital assigned their lead nurse to perform Latundra's examination. Prior to the exam, photographs were taken. Ligature marks on her neck clearly indicated that an electrical cord was used. Soul pulled the cord around her neck so long and so tight that the impression was still very deep. You could clearly see the groove that separates the two wires. Her face was swollen from the punches she received and she had multiple puncture wounds on her hips and legs caused by splinters on the old wooden floor which she was attacked on. Her fingernails were torn and broken from her attempt to dislodge the wire around her neck. Her fingers had deep impressions and bruising from being trapped by the electrical wire. Her neck was bruised and swollen, making it difficult for her to talk or swallow. Her loss of bladder and bowel control is also considered a classic symptom of strangulation. Her attack by soul was brutal. Although the damage she sustained physically was severe, so was the emotional and mental damage. It's just incredible how she managed to maintain her composure and talk her way out of the house and away from a violent killer. Latundra Billups showed immense courage by going to the ER and reporting her rape. She clearly demonstrated her strength and determination to stop Soul by filing a police report and providing them with as much information as she could. She was stunned when she told police about Soul and found out they were very much aware of him. She didn't even know his real name, but they did. He was already on their radar for other reports of assault and rape. Latundra couldn't help wondering, if the police knew about him, then why wasn't he arrested or in prison? Good question, Latundra. It took a month before police began their investigation into her case. Latundra says she tried to contact investigators sooner to find out what was going on, and investigators said they couldn't find her. Whatever the reason, a month is a long time to wait, and in this case, too long. That month-long delay gave Anthony Soul enough time to lure another woman into his trap. At 51 years of age, Sean Morris had struggled with addiction almost half her life. She was an alcoholic addicted to crack cocaine. Sean had been to rehab more than once and even managed to stay clean for a couple of years at a time, but it never really stuck. She would do fine for a while, and then a craving would hit her, and she just couldn't shake it. On October 19, 1987, that's exactly what happened. When the craving hit, she tried to distract herself, but it was a losing battle. Sean stepped outside to take a walk, hoping that would help. While she was out, she ran into a girlfriend. When her girlfriend suggested they go for a drink, Sean didn't have the strength to turn her down. As they were walking along, they ran into a couple more women they knew who invited them to a house party. At the house party, Sean had a good old time drinking and getting high. When the party broke up at 3 a.m., Sean was afraid to go home. She knew her husband was going to be pissed. 
They had been married for 18 years, and her husband Doug was a good man. He stood by her and supported her throughout her struggles with drugs and alcohol over the years. But even Doug had his limits. Sean knew Doug would be upset, and she knew she should go home, but she just couldn't help herself. She still wanted to party. She and her friends decided to wait at a bus stop next to a nearby gas station that also sold beer. Their plan was to buy some beer as soon as the station opened at 5.30 a.m. so they could keep on partying. While they were waiting for the gas station to open, a black man got off the bus and approached the women. He bummed a cigarette and introduced himself as Anthony Soule. Once the gas station opened up, Soule went across the street and used an ATM machine to withdraw some money. Then he bought beer and wine for the group. Sean was impressed. She thought, wow, Soule was not just nice, but generous too. The group partied right there for another hour and a half. At 7 a.m., Sean started to get worried. She told Soul that her children would be coming to the bus stop soon on their way to school. The last thing she wanted was for her kids to see her sitting here drinking beer. She asked him if they could go somewhere to hang out until it was safe. He said, sure, we can go back to my place on Imperial Avenue. It's not too long of a walk from here. As they walked to Soul's house, he bought a couple of quarts of beer from a local store and some crack from a dealer on the street. When they entered his house, he took Sean straight up to the second floor bedroom. As she was climbing the stairs, she noticed a horrible smell, but couldn't quite place it. Once they were in the bedroom, Sol lit some incense, put on some music, and handed the crack pipe to Sean. They partied until 9 a.m., but Sean finally had to make her move and get home. Sol didn't want her to go, but he didn't stop her. She stepped out of the house into a cold, crisp, sunny morning. When Sean got a few houses down the road, she realized she didn't have her identification card. Figuring she left it at Soul's, she went back to his house and rang the bell. He looked out the upstairs bedroom window and motioned for her to come on in. She did, and Soul met her at the door and guided her up the stairs. Then, without warning, Soul grabbed her from behind, putting her in a chokehold. With his mouth next to her ear, he told her that she was to follow his orders and answer all questions with yes, sir. He told her she wouldn't be leaving until he said she could leave, and if she screamed or tried to get away, he would kill her. Sean found herself back in that second-story bedroom. Soul ordered her to strip. Terrified, Sean tried hard not to panic. After working in a bank for 15 years, she tried to use some of the same tactics she used on problematic customers, but all she got was a hard slap in the face. He pushed her down onto the bed, face down, and began to violently rape her. As he was assaulting her, he shouted at her, telling her that she was a bitch, chastising her for being out on the streets when she has a husband at home. When he finished raping her vaginally, he tried to rape her anally. Sean screamed out in pain. This caused him to jump up and frantically begin to close windows and turn up the music to drown out her screams. While he was out of the room, Sean was beginning to realize that he was going to kill her. And just then, she saw the bedroom window was open. Desperate to escape, she stepped out onto the windowsill and maneuvered herself so that she was hanging by her hands. 
it would be a 20-foot drop down into the paved alley next to the house. Before she could let go, Sol ran to the window and grabbed her arm. He tried with all his might to pull her back through the window, but Sean at 175 pounds was too heavy for him, and she dropped hard, hitting the concrete. The fall knocked her unconscious. During the struggle and fall, Sean broke several fingers on one hand, broke both hands, fractured her right wrist, fractured her skull, broke eight ribs, and suffered a brain aneurysm. It's just a miracle she survived the fall and was not more seriously injured. Just the thought of her fall makes me cringe. As Sean lay naked, badly injured, and unconscious on the concrete, a crowd began to gather, gawking but not helping. Some even had their cell phones out taking pictures. At the same time, Donald Laster was driving by. He happened to own rental property on Imperial Avenue. He saw the crowd of onlookers and pulled over. And then he saw what everyone was looking at. Sean was lying there on her stomach, moaning. He yelled at the looky-loos to put away their damn phones. And then Laster saw Soul moving towards Sean. He was naked as well. Soul bent over her, and to Laster, it looked like he was trying to choke her. Another man in the crowd, Fawcett Best, saw the same thing. He ran up to Soul and asked him what he was doing. Soul tried to explain, saying that this was his wife. He said they were having sex, and she fell through the window, saying repeatedly, it's cool. And Bess said, no, it's not cool. Lester got a t-shirt from his car and told Soul to cover her up. Instead, Soul began dragging Sean back towards the house. Laster threatened to kick Soul's ass if he didn't stop, and then he dialed 911. Despite Laster's threats, Soul kept trying to drag Sean back in the house. He got her as far as the door, but the ambulance arrived before he could get her inside. Sean was immediately transported to the hospital. She was treated for her numerous injuries, including brain surgery for her aneurysm. Sean was unconscious for three days. When she finally came around, she told the nurse she needed to call her husband and let him know where she was. The nurse said, oh, don't worry, he rode in the ambulance with you, so he knows you're here. Sean was stunned to realize that Sol had rode in the ambulance with her, pretending to be her boyfriend or husband. That is so creepy. When the phone rang in Sean's hospital room, it was Sol. He was threatening to kill her and her family if she said anything to the police. After what she'd been through, Sean believed him. She lied to her husband about what happened, telling him that she'd been hit by a car. When she was questioned by the police, she lied to them as well. She told them Sol was her boyfriend and he was telling them the truth. Even though the police were highly skeptical, they had no choice but to write her fall off as an accident. He was released later that evening. It seemed that Sol had gotten away with attempted murder again. Latundra Billups was attacked on September 23, 2009, and Sean Morris was attacked on October 20th, 2009. Cleveland police couldn't take action on Sean Morris's case since she refused to press charges and told the police her fall was an accident. But they were finally ready to move on the Latundra Billups case. 
On October 28, 2009, just a little over a month after Latundra was attacked, an arrest warrant for the home on 12205 Imperial Avenue was signed. A 13-member Cleveland Police Department SWAT team was assembled. They met to discuss their strategy for searching the home using a diagram of the floor plan of the house. The search warrant was based on the charges filed on behalf of Latundra Billups for rape and attempted murder. On October 29, 2009, the search warrant was executed. SWAT team officers wearing all black military gear and other officers dressed a little more casually piled into multiple vehicles and converged on 12205 Imperial Avenue. All of the officers were armed and gained entrance to the house through a side door. Once inside, they split up and began their search based on the diagram. Some officers going straight to the third floor, some going to the second floor, and others going to the basement. Their primary goal was to arrest Anthony Edwards' soul. They methodically made their way through the house shouting, Police! The house is described as a typical crack house. Crack pipes and marijuana were found in one room. The walls and ceilings were crumbling. Paint was peeling, and there was garbage and debris everywhere. Officers on the third floor came across a locked door. The horrible stench of decomposition seemed to be emanating from behind the locked door. Officers were able to easily kick the door in. Behind the door, they found two people lying on the floor. They yelled out, Police! Don't move! It was very dark and difficult to see because the windows had black garbage bags taped over them. The officers shined their light onto the two individuals and realized they were dead and severely decomposed. One of the bodies was wearing a clover-shaped charm on a silver necklace, and the other body was wearing a white dress which was pulled up to the waist and her feet were bound together inside a garbage bag. There was a shovel lying next to her on the floor. The original search warrant was for the arrest of Sol, but he wasn't found on the property. With the discovery of the two dead bodies, two new search warrants were obtained. These would allow an extensive search of the home and property. With search warrants in hand, police resumed their search the next day, only this time they brought personnel from the coroner's office and a cadaver dog. In addition to the two bodies already found, Nine more bodies were found as the search continued. One beneath a basement staircase under a mound of dirt, two more on the third floor, one inside a black plastic bag, and one in a crawl space concealed beneath more dirt. In the backyard, the cadaver dog alerted to a spot near the back porch where police located another body buried in a shallow grave. And using the backhoe, four more bodies were discovered. This brought the total number of bodies found to 11. Since 1957, Ray's Sausage, located on Imperial Avenue in East Cleveland, has been a proud family-owned business. They're known for their head cheese and fresh beef and pork sausage and links. For decades, in the surrounding area, people recognized the smell of sausage being cooked. For over six decades, the Cash family the owners of Ray's Sausage have seen some hard times, but they stayed strong and survived the changing landscape of Cleveland. 
Unlike so many of Sol's victims, they survived his reign of terror and are still a proud family-owned business. In fact, Ray's Sausage has become something of an historic landmark in the area. From the 1860s to the 1920s, East Cleveland included a street named Euclid Avenue. It was also known as Millionaire's Row. John D. Rockefeller was one of its residents. Streets were being paved and streetcar service from Cleveland began. Demographics were changing too. European immigration came to a halt due to post-war immigration restrictions, but at the same time, African-American immigration from the rural South picked up. Up until the late 1920s and early 30s, there was a building boom underway, at least until the Great Depression arrived. During this period, many of the homes in the area were taken over and used as boarding houses or demolished or abandoned. After World War II, new suburbs were being built, and this brought a significant change to East Cleveland. But during the 1960s, the auto and steel industries went into a decline and took many Cleveland neighborhoods with it. During the latter half of the century, commercial properties and fast food chains sprouted up, but businesses were still closing and unemployment skyrocketed. Folks who were more affluent left to go live in the suburbs. This left neighborhoods in the city empty, neglected, poorly policed, and prime territory for criminals. The folks who stayed behind were the ones who couldn't afford to leave. By now, the majority of the population in the area was black. In the 1980s, crack cocaine made its debut appearance. It was easy to make, cheap to buy, and highly addictive. The crack epidemic destroyed neighborhoods, families, and lives. Gangs moved in, those who could afford it moved out, homicides increased, and prostitution became commonplace. The ripple effect of crack was far and wide. Everyone and their mother literally were using crack. Businesses were terrorized, schools were battling poor attendance, women were prostituting themselves to support their habit, homelessness increased, and children were neglected and going hungry. Nobody was safe in this environment. Sadly, not much has changed over the years. In the spring of 2007, women began disappearing from East Cleveland and a foul stench began to emerge and permeate the air around Imperial Avenue. The Cleveland Health Department inspectors had been out on a number of occasions to investigate but had never been able to identify the source. A mail carrier in the area stated that the smell was more than incredibly bad. It was horrible and putrid. Folks who lived in the neighborhood said it smelled like rotting meat or dead bodies or gas leak or sewage or a dead dog, and many were blaming Ray's sausage. Ray's spent over $20,000 in repairs and adjustments based on the health inspector's recommendations, but none of it helped with the smell. In the end, health inspectors were never able to find a single thing related to Ray's that would account for the foul odor, but people blamed them anyway. The stench was so bad, people would close their windows in the middle of a heat wave. One man who owned a convenience store in the area said he actually shoved orange peels in his nose to mask the smell. Can you imagine how bad the smell must have been? And this went on for two years. 
Right next door to Ray's Sausage was the Soul family home. It was owned by Sigurna Soul, the stepmother of Anthony Soul. It was a three-story house with four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a basement. The home was originally occupied by Sigurna on the first floor, tenants renting the second floor, and Anthony Soul living on the third floor. Not long after Soul had moved into his stepmother's home, she was admitted to the hospital to treat her kidney disease. The young family who had been renting the second floor moved out. Anthony Soul was now the sole occupant of 12205 Imperial Avenue. Anthony Edward Soul was born in East Cleveland's Meridia Huron Hospital on August 19, 1959, to parents Thomas Soul Sr. and Claudia Garrison. His parents were never married, and his father left his mother shortly after he was born. Anthony Soule's dad, Thomas Soule Sr., was born in 1922. Just a few years prior to his birth, his parents moved to Cleveland from Athens, Alabama. In 1942, Soule Sr. married and had four children. Soule Sr. also spent a great deal of time behind bars. He had a reputation as a safecracker and a fraudulent check writer. He was also a heavy drinker and a womanizer. Anthony Soule is one of his illegitimate children, and there are rumors of more. He married two more times and would eventually settle down in his family home on 12205 Imperial Avenue with his last wife, Sigurna. Soule was raised by his mother, Claudia, who was also raising her grandchildren. Her daughter, Patricia, died during a bronchial asthma attack, leaving behind seven children. Claudia then became the recipient of the Social Security and Public Assistant benefits for all of her grandchildren. She used the money to buy a nearly 4,000-square-foot home at 1878 Page Avenue. Living in the house was Claudia, her own four children, and her mother Irene, and her daughter's seven children. With 11 children and two adults, it was a full house. Claudia ran a tight ship. There were a lot of rules and chores. Not following the rules or completing the chores resulted in a cruel and violent punishment. These usually took the form of beatings or whippings using a cord, belt, or stick while you were completely naked and tied to the banister of the stairs. And Claudia wasn't the only one handing down the punishment. Apparently her mother Irene got in on the act as well. Patricia's seven children were the most frequent targets of Claudia's wrath, but all of the children in that house were subjected to the violence, the neglect, and the emotional abuse to varying degrees. All of the children were witnesses, willing or not. Many times over the years, Sol watched his mother Claudia Garrison beat two of his nieces in particular with an electrical cord. They would be completely naked and tied to a stairway banister. He watched and listened as his mother shouted and whipped the girls while the girls screamed in pain. Their entire bodies would be covered in welts and blood. These nieces were subjected to these beatings daily until they finally managed to escape by running away. According to one of Sol's cousins, who was a regular target of these beatings, Sol would sometimes stare stone-faced as he watched, and other times he would laugh. Those who remember Soul from childhood describe him as kind, respectful, quiet, 
and interested in learning. One of his science teachers remembers him as having a special interest in electricity. Hmm, does this have something to do with his future use of electrical cords? Growing up, he was shy and had a slight build. This made him a frequent target for bullies, and he was constantly teased and taunted. Over his lifetime, Sol's dad spent little or no time with him. The closest he got to being fathered was when his dad asked one of his adult sons to spend time with Sol. Sol was about eight at the time, and his older brother was 24. It wasn't much, and it didn't last. The brothers were all much older than Sol. And even though they cared about him, they didn't have time for him. They were busy living their own lives. As a result of growing up in the toxic, abusive environment of Claudia's house, nearly all of the 11 children suffer with mental illness or substance abuse problems, and several have been institutionalized. Although many of these children had a similar upbringing as Sol, none turned out quite like he did. On January 24, 1978, Anthony Soule joined the United States Marine Corps. He emerged from boot camp as an honor graduate. He was automatically promoted from private to private first class. This is a big deal in the Marines. He would have to be in exceptional physical shape and perform in an outstanding manner in all areas to impress his superiors in such a fashion. In May of 1978, while stationed at Camp Lejeune, Sol studied electrical wiring and began his career as an electrician. In September of 1981, Sol got married to a fellow Marine. He met Kim Lawson while they were both deployed in Okinawa. Things didn't work out for the couple, and in 1985, Kim filed for divorce. Sol speaks highly of Kim and claims that she really helped him through some tough times. Sol's career in the Marines was without blemish, except for one alcohol-related infraction where he was out drinking with a Marine below his rank, which is not allowed, and he got into a fight with an MP. Other than this incident, he had a spotless record. Off the record, he was not so squeaky clean. It seems Sol took advantage of prostitutes while he was in Okinawa. Using his status as a Marine officer, he intimidated the women into doing what he wanted. These sessions often included bondage, choking, and domination. Sometimes he would tie a girl to a chair and put a rope around her neck. This may have been the beginning of his foray into the dark side. With a chest full of ribbons and medals, Anthony Soule was honorably discharged from the Marines on January 15, 1985. In 1985, after seven years in the Marines, Sol was a civilian again and returning to his old stomping grounds in East Cleveland. He was 25 years old and back in his mother's house, the Hell Hole, on 1878 Page Avenue. The neighborhood was overrun with drug dealers and the crime rate was off the charts. There was a shortage of police officers and they only responded to high priority calls. Sol was not used to the chaos that was now East Cleveland. He was used to the orderly, organized world of the Marines. He was not handling the transition well. Family members remember him being a neat freak when he returned from the Marines and quick to anger. He had a hard time finding a job and began drinking heavily. 
sometimes starting in the morning and drinking all day. Before long, Soul was charged with domestic violence, disorderly conduct, driving while intoxicated, public drunkenness, and aggravated burglary. He was not doing well. Four years of civilian life had taken its toll on Soul. He was unemployed and drinking heavily. On July 22, 1989, outside a seedy motel, a young woman came outside to see what all the commotion was about. Police cars had converged on the hotel, and it looked like it might be a big drug bust. The young woman was 21-year-old Melvet Sockwell. She was a drug user, and she was waiting for her boyfriend to come back to the motel. She was also worried about possibly being arrested. As she stood outside, pacing nervously, Sol, who also happened to be at the hotel, spotted her. Sol took advantage of her nervousness and offered to let her wait at his place until the police left. Sockwell accepted his offer and climbed in his car. It was about 6 a.m. in the morning when they arrived at 1878 Page Street, and it was still dark outside. Since Melvet had just met Sol, she was feeling a little uneasy about going into the house with a complete stranger. But after they got inside, she saw kids' toys and clothes lying around, and he was trying to be quiet so he wouldn't wake his sister up, so this made her feel a little better. When they got to his room, Melvet noticed that it was clean and tidy. She asked Sol if she could use his phone, and this is when his demeanor changed. He went from Mr. Nice Guy to scary as hell in a flash. He shut and locked the bedroom door and closed the window. He instructed Melvet to sit down while he seemed to have pulled a big old knife out of nowhere. He ordered her to take her clothes off, and Melvet did as she was told. At this point, she thought if she cooperated, she had a better chance of surviving whatever was about to happen. She told Sol that she was three months pregnant, hoping that it would stop him from hurting her. She was wrong. He simply threw her onto the bed and raped her repeatedly. Each time he raped her, he would order her to clean herself up and put her clothes on. He would apologize and then rape her again. After raping her several times, he tied her hands behind her back with a necktie, stuffed a towel in her mouth, and tied her ankles together with a belt and took a nap. When he woke up, he began choking Melvet. He choked her until she thought she would pass out. It hurt so bad. Fortunately, Sol got tired and stopped. He then told her he was going to beat her and then kill her, but said he was going to sleep first because he was too tired to kill her right now. He laid down on the bed next to her and began to snore. Melvet knew she had to get out of there before Sol woke up or she'd be a dead woman. He had beaten her with his fists, cut her with a knife, and almost choked her to death. She began to study the bedroom window. They were in a third-story bedroom which had dormer windows. She used her head to nudge the window open. When she had it open far enough to get through, she made her move. Melvet was a petite, 95-pound young woman and managed to maneuver her small frame through the window and onto the roof. She could easily have fallen the 25 feet to the ground, but she didn't care. She was running for her life. It was nighttime by now, but two elderly women about to get into a car spotted her. Melvet couldn't really scream or shout because of the gag Sol had stuffed in her mouth. But thankfully, the women could see that she was tied up and called the police. 
Very quickly, police, fire trucks, and an ambulance were converging on 1878 Page Street. Melvette was paralyzed with fear, being brutally assaulted by Soul, and making an escape that could easily have killed her was overwhelming. When she was brought back into the bedroom by officers, she could see Soul lying on the bed, still sleeping. When they woke him up, he just rolled back over and said he was going back to sleep. Soul was arrested and charged for the rape and kidnapping of Melvette Sockwell, but he was released on bond. Soul was out on bond for four months, and naturally he didn't show up for his court hearing on December 8, 1989. An arrest warrant was issued at that time, but another eight months would go by and he was still not in custody. It was during this period that Soul raped another woman. It was on June 24, 1990. The attack took place at a house in Cleveland. The woman was 31 years old, pregnant, and remains anonymous. She was sitting on a small sofa next to Soul when he unexpectedly turned to her and began choking her. He was screaming at her, yelling obscenities, and threatening her by describing all the horrible things he was going to do to her. He dragged her upstairs and raped her orally, vaginally, and anally. The woman begged for him to stop, but it was useless. Soul continued his attack while ordering her to say, Yes, sir, I like it. At some point, Soul fell asleep, again, and the woman was able to make her escape. She ran to the police and reported the attack. When officers got to the house, Soul was asleep. He was arrested and charged, but the charges had to be dropped when the woman disappeared. Fortunately, when they checked his record, they found his arrest warrant for the rape and kidnap of Melvette Sockwell. At Soul's trial, his half-sister, the officers who arrested Soul, the doctor who treated Melvette, and Melvette herself testified against him. Unbelievably, Soul's attorneys got his charges reduced to attempted rape, and he pled guilty. On September 12, 1990, Soul was sentenced to 15 years in prison. At the age of 31, he began serving his prison sentence. Over time, he would be held in four different Ohio prisons. The Marines prepared Soul well for prison. He knew how to deal with the structure, order, and authority required in prison life. He did well in prison, rarely got in trouble, and had a job as a prep cook in the kitchen, as a yard maintenance worker, and an electrician. He came up on parole a few times, but each time he was denied. He served his full 15 years and was released on June 20, 2005, at the age of 45. His mother, Claudia Garrison, and a number of other relatives came to the prison to pick him up and take him home. He moved into his sister's house, which was packed with 13 of her children and grandchildren. After staying with his sister for about a month, he moved into his stepmother's house. Sigurna Soul lived at 12205 Imperial Avenue. She was seriously ill with kidney disease, and not long after Soul moved in, she moved out, being admitted to hospital, never to return to her home. Not long after moving into his stepmother's home on Imperial Avenue, Soul met 37-year-old Lori Frazier. Lori just happened to be the niece of Cleveland's mayor, Frank Johnson. 
Frank Johnson served as the mayor until 2022 when he chose not to seek re-election. During his tenure, he worked with the police to reduce excessive force and was a member of Mayors Against Gun Violence. It was July of 2005 and Lori had just stepped out of a local convenience store. She was carrying a 40-ounce bottle of beer in a brown paper bag when she spotted Sol. Sol spotted her at the same time and offered to get her something better than beer. He was carrying Chinese takeout at the time but offered to take her out for a drink. She accepted and they walked over to a nearby bar where they had a few drinks together. At first, Lori thought Sol was a John, but when she realized he wasn't, he became much more interesting. Here was a man who could raise her standard of living, and she thought he was attractive. Sol was certainly infatuated with Lori, and the fact that she was pretty and well-connected didn't hurt. They were both under the mistaken impression that they had found someone who could elevate their lives. Sol offered her some of his Chinese food, but she declined, choosing to drink instead. After sharing a few drinks, they headed to Sol's place on Imperial Avenue. What Sol didn't know was that Lori was a hardcore crack addict. She had been using since the late 80s. Lori acquired a long arrest record over the years and had been in jail several times for drugs, prostitution, and mental issues. Because of her addiction, she couldn't work, and she couldn't take care of her children. Her only goal in life was to get high. She was used to living in filth and hooking to support her habit. Nobody was safe from the crack epidemic, not even the niece of Cleveland's mayor. They were hanging out in Sol's room, drinking the beer that Lori had purchased earlier. Sol told Lori that he had to get up real early to go to work, explaining that he worked at Custom Rubber. She said, no problem, and they went to sleep early. When she woke up, Sol was gone. Lori hung out in Sol's room for a while before heading back to her own place. She knew then that she would be coming back. In fact, Lori didn't just come back, she moved in. Sol actually treated Lori surprisingly well. He tolerated her drug habit, he cooked for her, they partied together and became a couple. They did things that couples do. They even went grocery shopping together. Sol worked six days a week while Lori spent her days laying around his house watching TV and smoking crack. This was their relationship for almost two years. He took great care of Lori and to others they seemed happy and he seemed normal. At this point in time, Sol was not using crack yet. It wasn't until sometime in April 2006 that Sol began to use crack too. When he did, their relationship began to suffer. There wasn't room in this relationship for two crack users. Sol's demeanor towards Lori changed. He wasn't as nice as he used to be, and his temper would flare up at the drop of a hat. Sol kicked Lori out at one point and began to have serious crack parties at the house. He invited other women and young girls to party with him. He eventually let her come back, but he was not looking good and the place was a wreck. Sol had lost weight and he had poor hygiene. Even though Sol was now a raging crack addict, he still managed to keep his job at Custom Rubber. But in February of 2007, he had a heart attack. He needed surgery and had a pacemaker put in. Once he had recovered from his surgery, he went back to work. 
Unfortunately, he just couldn't do the job anymore and was let go. Sol was a registered sex offender, a crack addict, and he had a heart condition. This made it very difficult for him to find a new job. Instead, he turned to scrapping like so many others and often stole copper from homes to scrap. As they headed into the summer of 2007, women began to disappear from the neighborhood. At the same time, Lori began to notice injuries on Sol, and when she asked him what happened, he would just blow it off, saying he had gotten in a fight. Lori was not staying at Imperial Avenue full-time anymore, but she made the occasional visit. On one visit, she noticed blood spots on a floor and holes in a bedroom wall. Sol told her someone had tried to rob him, but he fought them off. She began to notice all kinds of weird things. She noticed a broken window, a door which had never been locked was now locked, and Sol always seemed to be doing something in his backyard. Once he told Lori he was planting a garden, and another time he told her he was burying waste from a toilet. The house smelled horrible, and Sol blamed it on raised sausage. In May of 2007, Crystal Dozier was 38 years old and had seven children. She is believed to have been Sol's first murder victim. Her father died of kidney disease when she was just a kid. Her mother, Florence Bray, lost their house to foreclosure after he died and ended up moving herself and four kids to public housing. The public housing project was filled with gangs and drugs. Crystal's mom did her best to keep her kids in line, but she wasn't strong enough to fight the environment they were living in. Crystal had her first child when she was only 13. The next year, she had another child. By the time she was 21, she had seven kids. Crystal had gone to school intermittently at best. At the age of 17, the father to six of her kids was taking her into the projects where he was prostituting her out for drugs. His name was Anthony Troop. Crystal and Anthony were living with Crystal's mom for a while, and this is how her mom found out Anthony was beating Crystal. One night, she woke up to the sound of Anthony just wailing on Crystal. Florence grabbed a big carving knife and told Anthony he had better stop unless he wanted to tangle with her. The next day, Anthony moved his family into their own apartment. This way, he could beat Crystal without Florence interfering. He was also spending all their public assistance money on drugs. It was not uncommon for Anthony to leave them with nothing more than a bag of potatoes to eat. When Crystal's older brother came by to visit while he was on leave from the Marines, he found out about Anthony's treatment of Crystal. He, in turn, beat Anthony up so badly that he stopped beating on Crystal. Unfortunately, he redirected his focus to the kids. Eventually, social workers became aware of the abuse, and both Crystal and Anthony were deemed unfit as parents. After a lot of coaxing, her family finally convinced Crystal to leave Anthony. At the age of 22, she had her own federally subsidized apartment in custody of all her children. Crystal had never been on her own before, and being a single mom with seven kids was a lot for her to take on. She didn't handle it well, and her drug use increased significantly. She would disappear for days at a time on crack binges. Her children were all removed from her care, 
and placed with relatives or in foster care. Crystal, like so many other unfortunate people who fall into the abyss of crack cocaine addiction, was in deep. Her life was now consumed with getting her next high. She was at that point where her family, her children, her dignity, her safety were all meaningless when it came to getting that next rock. Crystal met Soul back in 2006 and had partied with him before a few times. She willingly traded him sex for crack. One morning, Crystal desperately needed to get high. She got herself dressed and called Soul. What happened next is speculation based on Soul's past history. It's clear that Soul did have Crystal at his house and they most likely got high together. But something went wrong and Soul ended up killing her. She was found buried in his backyard with her hands and ankles tied together with coaxial cable. He strangled her with some type of cloth rope which he left around her neck and he wrapped her upper body in a large trash bag. She was naked from the waist down and another large trash bag was placed over her lower body. Then he took silver duct tape and secured both bags by wrapping the tape around her whole body. Soul buried Crystal in a shallow grave in his backyard next to a chain link fence. This fence separated his property from Ray's sausage. He placed a piece of plywood over the grave to keep animals out. Then on July 11, 2007, Crystal's son, who had just completed his assignment with the Marines, filed a missing persons report. Crystal's children put flyers up and scoured the neighborhood looking for her. That very same summer, the Cleveland Health Department began receiving complaints about a horrible stench near Soul's house. The actual source of the smell wasn't identified and most people blamed Ray's sausage. His next victim was Tashana Culver. She was murdered by Soul about a year after Crystal. Tashana lived on Imperial Avenue only a block from Soul's place. She was a mother of six and was last seen by her family in June of 2008. Tashana's parents were high school sweethearts, but they broke up before getting married and before Tashana turned one. She grew up with her mother and grandmother because her father spent most of his time in prison. Tashana had her first child when she was still in high school, but she still managed to graduate, then went on to study cosmetology. She tried hard to support her growing family, but it wasn't easy. She was engaged to a young man in the mid-1990s, but sadly he committed suicide with a gunshot to the head before they married. This was a significant turning point for Tashana. This is when she began her journey into the dark side. Over the following years, she was arrested for drugs, weapons, and prostitution. At the age of 22, she was a single mother with three children and a flourishing drug habit. Her next serious relationship was a mess. She was now involved with a man named Carl Johnson. Tashana and Carl had three children together, bringing Tashana's grand total to six. Carl was a drug addict too, but he didn't want her to prostitute herself for drugs. I was surprised by this. He tried to stop her, but she was determined. On one occasion, when Carl tried to stop her from going out, she punched him and pulled a knife on him, attempting to stab him. 
Tashana went to prison for this fight. She was lucky enough to get placed on a work release program, but when she tried to go back to her mother's place, her mother turned her away. As tough as it was for her mom, her mom didn't want Tashana's kids to see her in such a terrible state. Authorities last saw Tashana on May 21, 2008, when she signed out for work release. The last time anyone else saw her was in June of 2008. Her body would eventually be found on the third floor of Soul's house, stuffed into a crawl space. Autopsy results showed that Tashana had suffered a fractured hyoid bone in her neck, suggesting manual strangulation. LaShonda Long was born in Cleveland in 1984. Her mother was Jewel Long and her father was Jim Allen. Her mother was a drug addict and not really in the picture, and her father was a corrections officer. She was raised by her father and grandmother, and for a time by her Aunt Caroline. Caroline tried so hard, but she had taken in all six of Jim Allen's kids in addition to her own two. Trying to care for eight kids is a huge undertaking in the best of circumstances. LaShonda was rebellious from an early age and very difficult to control. She would often run away looking for her mom. She would search the streets and crack houses where her mom had been before. She began staying out all night and defying her Aunt Caroline. She kept telling her aunt that she wanted to live with her father and mother. Caroline finally relented, telling her that if her father wanted her back, she could go. So, LaShonda went back to live with her dad and his new wife. Even though she got what she wanted, she still kept running away. She had her first child when she was only 13. At the age of 15, she became a regular in juvenile detention and in psychiatric care. She had also attended drug and alcohol counseling for six months, but it didn't help. By the time she was 17, she had three children. But LaShonda just couldn't get it together. She continued to get in trouble and spend time in juvenile detention. Her father was convinced she was using drugs, and he and other relatives had custody of her three children. LaShonda would just go off and disappear for weeks or months at a time. At the age of 23, LaShonda managed to get an apartment on Imperial Avenue. It was extremely close to Soul's house. She was living there off and on with her boyfriend, Reggie. In February of 2008, LaShonda had mostly been on the streets living very rough. One day, her dad got a call from the hospital telling him that LaShonda had been badly beaten up. He tried to talk her into getting off the streets. He was so afraid for her. LaShonda was only 4 feet 7 and 100 pounds. She did come home with her dad one last time, and Jim Allen tried hard to get his daughter the help she needed. He was not always a constant in her life, but he says LaShonda always called him on his birthday. But one afternoon, she walked out the door of her father's house and never came back. LaShonda Long went missing in May of 2008. Her father didn't get his August birthday call that year, and this was a bad omen. Police would later discover her skull wrapped in a black plastic bag inside a red bucket in Soul's basement. None of her other body parts were ever found. And that's it for part one. Thanks so much for listening. 
I hope you'll come back and join me for part two, The Dramatic Conclusion. Thanks again for tuning in to Crime Happens. All episodes are researched, written, recorded, and audio mixed by me. <gasps> Crime Happens is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Apple, and other podcast platforms. Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen. Check out my website at crimehappens.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at crime underscore happens. I'll be back very soon with an all-new episode. Until then... I wish you well.